0: Let's read the Holy Scriptures together this morning in Luke chapter 2. We read this portion of God's Word in connection with Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism and the doctrine of the Incarnation. Luke 2 verses 1 through 20 this morning. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, And see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things, and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Thus far we read God's word. We consider together this morning Lord's Day 14 in the Catechism, which you can find in the back of the Psalter on page 9. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin excepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity, that he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are currently considering together the second part of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed being divided up into three parts on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are considering the second part regarding God the Son. And we have finished examining the most significant names of the Savior. Jesus Christ, only begotten Son and Lord, which revealed to us much about his nature and work. This morning, we begin now to consider the most significant facts about our Savior, beginning with the fact that we confess in this article that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Make no mistake this morning that as we begin to look at these articles on the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, which we refer to as the incarnation of God, we're dealing here with historical facts. We're not dealing here with myths or legends or stories that men have created, but we're dealing with historical facts. What we look at this morning is a real event. We're going to consider something that really happened in space and time in this universe in which we live. A historical event no less real than any other historical event no less real than the creation of the world in the beginning, than the flood that destroyed the earth in the days of Noah, than the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians and later to the Romans. We're dealing here when we look at the conception and birth of Christ with an event that is just as real as your conception and your birth. If you are convinced that you were really conceived and born, that that's a historical fact, then you ought to be just as convinced that the Son of God was conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to make abundantly clear the historical nature of the birth of Christ in the passage that we read. Did you notice how Luke anchors the story of the birth of Christ In history, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, everyone unto his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. Luke anchors the story of the birth of Christ in history. It really happened. But at the very same time, we confess this morning that we're looking at something that is a great mystery. A mystery that far surpasses our ability to understand. We're looking here at a great wonder that never ceases to amaze us when we look at conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I call your attention to that this morning under the theme, Believing the Incarnation of God's Son. Notice first the wonder, secondly the result of that wonder, and thirdly the profit of that wonder for us. As we gaze this morning by faith into that manger there in Bethlehem, and we see wrapped up in swaddling clothes that little baby boy who was just born to the Virgin Mary, the first thing that we must understand is that that little baby boy is God. That little baby boy is God's own son who continues eternal God, according to the catechism. God revealed that to the prophet Micah hundreds of years before he was born. Micah 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This ruler who was to come forth from Bethlehem, his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And the Heidelberg Catechism now, as it explains the wonder of his conception and birth, calls him God's eternal son. When the Catechism in Lord's Day 14 calls that little baby God's eternal son, it calls to our minds what we learned back in Lord's Day 13. There, the Catechism taught us that He is called the only begotten Son of God because He alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. We are sons and daughters of God by adoption, but He alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. That little baby wrapped up in swaddling clothes is the eternal and natural Son of God. That baby whose birth is announced in our text, that's what we have to see here in Luke chapter 2, which we read. That's a birth announcement. The birth announcement of the Messiah is the birth announcement of Him who is true and eternal God. Before He was conceived, He was God, the everlasting and almighty God. And after He was conceived, He continued to be true and eternal God. And he never stopped being the true and eternal God as long as he lived on this earth. He never stopped being the true and eternal God when he died on the cross, when he rose from the dead, when he ascended up into heaven. As Christians with the church of all ages, we reject the error of those who taught that God became a man, and when he became a man, he was no longer God. He changed from God into man. And he emptied himself of his divinity for a time, so that while he was on earth, he was a man and not God. And then, when he ascended back into heaven, he became God again. That's not true. The only begotten Son of God became man, but when he became man, he continued to be God. And he was God throughout the whole of his life on earth, though it was veiled behind his humanity. And he continues to be God today in his lofty place in heaven. We also reject the heresy of those who taught that this baby born in Bethlehem was just a man, just an ordinary baby boy like you and me when we were little ones. That the son of Mary was no one special in terms of his nature. That he is just a human being whose conception in the womb of Mary through the involvement of her husband Joseph was the beginning of his existence. That he did not exist before he was conceived and born. That he is just a man like us. Or if we believe that, then we must believe that Jesus was the greatest liar who ever existed because he claimed otherwise about himself. For example, to mention only one, John 17, verse 5, The last night of his life he prayed, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, notice, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Before the world was, he says, I had this glory with you. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2 verse 6 that Christ, who was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He did not think that it was robbery to claim that he was equal with God. Because he was equal with God. Because he was God. He was God. And John saw a vision in Revelation, a vision of the exalted Christ who says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. How could he say that unless he is the true and eternal God himself? So we see then the great wonder of the Incarnation. Is that God took upon him the very nature of man. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, God revealed to the prophet Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The son of the virgin would be God with us. God, become one of us. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. What a mystery. How could it be that the infinite God could be manifest in a finite human nature? How could it be that the eternal God could be manifest in a nature that can only be in one place at one time? How could it be that the God who is pure spirit could take to himself flesh and blood, material substance? How could it be that this God who is pure spirit and unchanging, immutable God could take upon a material flesh that is ever-changing. From a little seed in the womb of the Virgin Mary to a full-grown man, changing, 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 growing, becoming, developing. How can the eternal, immutable, infinite, unchanging God enter into a human nature? Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest In the flesh. We cannot fully understand it. We cannot fully explain it. But we believe it. I believe, we say in the Apostles' Creed, that this only begotten Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He took upon Himself the very nature of man. He entered into the stream of time and history. How can that be? He entered into human nature, Paul writes, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, verse 4. In the fullness of time, he did not come into the world in the beginning of time, but he came into the world after many centuries had passed. He did not come into the world at the end of time. But he came before many more centuries would pass. How can that be? How can it be that the God who is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, who was and is and is to come, the God who says, My name is Jehovah, Yahweh, I am that I am, came into time. At a very specific point of time. Great is the mystery of godliness. For we know that with God, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. Time means nothing to him. He's above time. He's infinitely exalted above time. And yet he came into time. He entered into the stream of time with us. He joined us here in history, and he came at a very specific point of time when Rome ruled the world, when Caesar Augustus sat on the throne, swaying his scepter over an empire that spanned the whole of the Mediterranean world. And he came into this world in a very specific place, conceived in the womb of of Mary in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. God condescended. You've heard that word before, condescended. It means that God, who is so high and lofty, infinitely high and exalted above the creation, came down. to be with us. He came down to us. He joined us in our human nature. But He did not come down in the person of the Father. He did not come down in the person of the Holy Spirit. He came down in the person of the Son, being sent by the Father and by the operation of the Holy Spirit. And he came down into the womb of a young virgin woman named Mary. In whom he took to himself the very nature of man. We have to reject another error. The error of those who have taught that in the womb of the virgin Mary, the son of God created some kind of special human nature. He didn't do that. Then he didn't really become one of us if he created some kind of special human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He didn't do that. He took to himself our human nature the same nature that you have, the same nature that I have. He took it from her. Since he did not have a human father, he took it from his human mother. He took from her very own flesh and blood a human nature to himself. That means that without the involvement of any man, including Joseph, the espoused husband of Mary, by a virgin conception, by a a wonder, a miracle, that has never happened since and never happened before. He created for himself a human life from one of the seeds of the Virgin Mary in her womb. And over the course of nine months, he took from her flesh and from her blood, which nourished him so that he developed and grew a body with hands and feet and fingers and toes and a head and all the organs fearfully and wonderfully made just like us. He took to himself the very nature of man. There was no human father involved. It was the Son of God who came down into her flesh by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived and he was born. Because when the days were accomplished, when nine months were finished, that she should bring forth her firstborn son, she brought him forth. He came forth. She washed him and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And she was nothing less than the mother of God. God in the flesh. We must have nothing to do with the other heresy. That Christ only appeared to be a man. But was not really a man. There were those in the early church who thought that material substance is inherently evil. So how could it be that God would become united to this evil material substance? And so they said it must be that he didn't. He only appeared to be a man. He wasn't really a man. Paul writes in Philippians 2 verse 7 that he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So they would say, you see, only in the form of a servant, only in the likeness of men, but not really a man. But they neglect the rest of Scripture. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says that as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Flesh, blood. The Apostle John warned the Christians in the early church against this Gnostic heresy that was spreading. 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3 Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist. And so we see the wonder of the Incarnation. The one true and eternal God has condescended and become a man, a real man. So as the angel said to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, fear not, for behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day over yonder in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. The result of the incarnation was first of all that the Messiah who was born was the true seed of David. Catechism points that out. He is the true seed of Of David. The fact that he was born to that particular woman, Mary, in that particular place, Bethlehem, was no coincidence and was not arbitrary, but was arranged by the sovereign providence of God according to his eternal counsel and plan. God eternally planned that the Messiah would come from the house of David. Going way back to Genesis, God revealed that plan through Father Jacob when in his dying days he pronounced blessings upon his sons. And the blessing that fell upon Judah was that out of Judah Shiloh would come and the scepter of kingship would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And God revealed more of that promise through Nathan the prophet, who came to David at the height of his power and promised him that although he will not build a house for the Lord, his son will build a house for the Lord. Solomon, but especially the coming Messiah, and that this coming Christ would sit upon the throne of his father David forever and ever and ever with a kingdom that would have no end. Throughout the whole of the Old Testament, God preserved that seed of the woman, that seed of David, so that there was always a son of David to sit upon the throne. From generation to generation, even when mighty empires arose in the east, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, those mighty, mighty empires, so frightening with their mighty emperors, were not able to crush the line of David. But even when the king was removed from the throne and carried off into Babylon. God preserved the line of David in captivity. And through captivity brought it back to the land of promise. Back to Jerusalem in the person of Zerubbabel. And for many, many more generations, many centuries, he preserved that line of David. Though it went, as it were, underground And it was hidden from all view until finally in the fullness of time it popped up in the persons of Joseph and Mary. Read Matthew 1 and Luke 3, the two genealogies of Christ, and you can see that both from Joseph and from Mary he was from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah. But that's not all that God providentially arranged. God showed that he is the king of kings, not Caesar Augustus. When he sovereignly moved the heart of the king to make a ruling that all the world should be taxed, Caesar thought that this bright idea came from his own mind. But it was Jehovah who had placed that idea in his mind. So that everyone throughout the empire would have to go to his hometown, the town of his ancestors, to register in the local registry so there would be accountability for the taxation. While Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth. But they were both of the house and lineage of David. So by that decree of Caesar Augustus, God prompted them that poor young couple, soon to be husband and wife in the fullest sense of the word, but so poor, had to make this long and arduous journey from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? That little town among all the thousands of Judah. Why not Jerusalem, the city of the great king? Because although David reigned in Jerusalem, he was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Bethlehem. He cared for his father's sheep in Bethlehem. And that's where Christ must be born. And so, by his birth in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary, we learn that he is the true seed of David. The true, long-awaited, promised Messiah will reign as king forever and ever. The Apostle Paul begins his great epistle to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Do you believe that? you believe that Jesus is true and eternal God? The little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes by virtue of the Incarnation is the true seed of David, your Messiah. Furthermore, the result of the incarnation was that he became like unto us in all things except for sin. On the one hand, we reject yet another heresy, the view of some in the ancient church was that the result of the incarnation was that Christ is two persons in two natures. The person of the Son of God, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, divine nature, human nature, somehow joined together but they couldn't explain exactly how. Sort of like a husband and wife are joined together, but they're two persons. They're joined together somehow in a mystical relationship. The church said, no. No. Christ is not a split personality. He is one person. And in 451 A.D., the church declared that the Council of Chalcedon, we acknowledge two natures of Christ, quote, concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. One person. But the church also rejected another heresy. The idea of others in the early church that the result of the incarnation was that the divine person and the human Jesus in the incarnation were mixed together as you might mix something to make a cake. You mix the ingredients together. You mix your flour and your sugar, but you no longer have flour or sugar, you have cake batter. So the divine and the human were mixed together in the womb of Mary in such a way that a third nature came into existence, which they didn't know what to call, so they just called it the God-man. The church said, no, not a mixture. Two natures, two distinct natures. He is very God and he is very man. Not a God man. One person come down, two natures. That's the result of the incarnation, which means that he is fully divine in every respect and he is fully human in every respect. He partook of flesh and blood from the Virgin Mary. He took the human nature with all that it contains, a real human body with all of the ordinary organs of a male of the human species. A real human spirit or soul and will. All that is involved in the spiritual side of a human being he possesses. He he took that to himself. A human soul which is the source of all of our thoughts and desires and beliefs and emotions and sorrows and joys. And he experienced all of those things. The whole of the emotional life of man except for sin, he experienced. The whole of the mental life, intellectual life of man. And he had to be fed when he was a little baby. He had to eat he had to drink milk from his mother he had to be fed with a little spoon when he was a a little baby boy and as he grew up in Nazareth he had to go to school and he had to study and read books and learn and study and memorize he had to learn how to walk with his feet and to grip things with his hands he had to use his eyes and his ears to see where he was going to hear things He even had a human will. There were others who said, well, oh, that's true, but he doesn't have a human will, though, does he? He has a divine will. He's not a human in this respect. But the church said no to that, too. No. Everything that involves human nature, he possessed. Can you prove that? Sure, behold him in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. That's the human will. But as thou wilt. That's the divine will. He had everything involved in human nature. And he had everything of divine nature as well. And therefore, he had no sin. If he really did have a human person, then you could argue that he also was a sinner. Because every human person is a sinner after the fall. The sin imputed to Adam, the guilt imputed to Adam for his sin, is imputed to every single human person that comes from Adam. But he's not a human person. That doesn't mean that there's an aspect of him which is not human. He is human in every respect. But when it comes to personhood, he is divine. The Son of God is the person we're talking about here. That person, the second person of the Trinity, came into human nature and took all of human nature to himself. But since he's a divine person who took that human nature... He not only had no sin, but he cannot sin. Sin, in its very essence, is rebellion against God. How can God rebel against himself? How can God disobey himself? He was free from all sin. And God declared that too at his trial when Pontius Pilate said before all of the world I find no fault in this man it's because there was no fault to be found. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. And so the result of the incarnation when Mary picked up that little baby boy wrapped in the swaddling clothes and held him in her arms. What was she holding there? A real human baby boy. In every respect, human. The eyes of her flesh, when she looked upon that baby boy, and as she looked at her son as he grew, all those eyes could see was his humanity. Humanity. What her eyes could not see was his deity. The same baby that she is holding in her arms was the God of the universe in human flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. What then is the prophet of the incarnation for us? There is great profit indeed because would the God of the universe come down into human nature for no good reason? Would he join himself to a single human being and become a baby? A humble, helpless, weak baby for no good reason? Of course not. He came with great reason. And the ultimate purpose of his coming was his own glory. God determined from all eternity to create this world, to create mankind, and that man would fall into sin and place himself into this predicament that there would be only one way of escape, only one way of salvation, that he would have to come down, become one of us save us God determined from all eternity this is the wisest best most wonderful glorious way to magnify myself to glorify myself and therein is the prophet for us we receive a benefit as he glorifies himself through us. And the benefit we receive is that with his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Catechism points out that I too was conceived and born, just as Jesus was. But unlike Jesus... When I was conceived from my parents, and when I was born in a hospital somewhere into this world, I was conceived and born in sin. Totally, thoroughly filthy and corrupt, guilty of original sin. And by virtue of that indwelling sin with which I was born as I grew up, I sinned. I sinned against my mom and dad. I didn't listen to them. I disobeyed them. I broke their rules throughout the whole of my childhood. And when I became a teenager, I broke their rules. I violated what they told me I ought to do and not to do. I decided that I wanted to walk in the ways of sin. I wanted to experience the pleasures of this world. And so I heaped sin upon sin upon sin. And I made myself worthy and exposed to the wrath and everlasting judgment of God. And there's nothing that I can do to escape from it. I'm stuck. I'm lost. And so the prophet is that he is my mediator. He stands between God and me as a great shield from that wrath that I deserve. Blocking it so that not one drop of divine wrath falls upon me, but he absorbs it all by his perfect innocence and holiness and by his death on the cross, so that he saves me from that horrifying hellfire. You see, God willed to show mercy and love That's why he was born a baby. He says, look at me. Look what I did for you. I became a little baby for you. I entered into this weak human nature for you. And I gave myself to have my hands and feet pierced with long steel nails. And a crown of thorns pressed into my head, my body broken, my spirit broken, forsaken for you. The prophet is salvation. So the angel knew what he spoke of when he said to the shepherds that night, Fear not, for behold, I bring you Good tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior, Christ the Lord. Will you then join the angels, the multitude of the heavenly heights, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Because in this child of wonder, God has become man forever and all eternity. And that's the final and perhaps the most glorious benefit of all. Where does all of this lead? What is the end goal of God with all of this? It is that we will be able to see him. It's that we will be able to fellowship with him face to face. Blessed, Jesus says, are you, for you will see God. You will see him in the face of Jesus Christ when all the weary night of this life is past and we awake in the glories of heaven. Who will you see? You will see God in the face of Jesus. And that's our hope. Amen. Heavenly Father, what a glorious hope Thou hast given us through the incarnation of Thy Son. We love the old story. We pray that Thou would bless it to our hearts this morning. May our faith be strengthened. May our understanding be increased. May our hope and our gladness overflow, and may our gratitude cause us to join the angels in giving glory unto thee in the highest.